0: Every single person who is on this earth, whether or not you're an artist or creator or whatever, you have a story. You have your own unique, ownable, specific narrative that nobody else can claim. And if you connect with that story, if you let that story empower you, if you let your story guide you, then who knows what you can do?
1: From the TED family of podcasts, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 16 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Debbie talks with Wa'el Morcos and Jonathan Key about their partnership in life and design.
0: You know, a designer from the Middle East and a designer from Alabama. Either Wa'el or I lead a project. We always have one leader on a project.
2: Creators, it's never been easier to build an audience and grow your business. And now you can do it all for free. ConvertKit's free plan can help you turn your passions into a full-time career by growing your fan base, promoting your work, and building a meaningful relationship with your audience. Now you can share your work with your fans by building a custom landing page in minutes, which can showcase your work and upcoming projects. And ConvertKit's email designer helps you create beautiful, simple emails that can help turn your casual audience into true fans. Writing professional and personalized emails about your work and process will allow you to meaningfully connect with your audience. ConvertKit will help you earn a living by doing what you love with tools to help promote your work, sell products, and announce new projects to your fans. Go to convertkit.com slash designmatters to sign up for a free account and find your audience faster. Today's sponsor... Lexus employs engineers who describe the phenomena that when a Lexus is truly doing its job, you don't notice most of what it's doing. Sounds a lot like what I aspire to do with visual design. For Lexus, the specifics of craft operate in the background in order to get out of the way of the emotion they are intended to evoke. Chief Designer Keoichi Suga described it as being akin to how happiness works. As humans, we aren't necessarily conscious of being happy, but we know immediately when we are unhappy, we notice the absence of happiness, not necessarily happiness itself. That kind of thoughtfulness and curiosity is what drives innovation at Lexus. Check them out at www.lexis.com curiosity. Wa'el Morcos is a graphic designer and type designer originally from Lebanon. Jonathan Key is an artist, designer, and writer originally from Alabama. The design studio they created together in Brooklyn is aptly named Morco's Key and they work with companies and institutions in the United States and the Middle East. Their clients have included the Public Theater and Nike and they've both won a boatload of awards for people under the age of 30. In other words, they're hot young designers, and they join me from their home to talk about their partnership and what it's like to be so successful so early in their careers. A quick note before we start. Jonathan Wa'el recorded themselves on their phones. My fancy home studio recording failed, but I did make my own phone recording as a backup. That's why I won't sound like I normally do. So thanks for your patience with our pandemic recording follies. In any case, my first question is the question I've been asking all my guests. How are you holding up in this utterly surreal year?
3: We're doing good. I keep telling John, we're really... That was said very tentatively (laughs)
0: well.
3: Yeah, considering everything that's happening. But I mean, I was, again, I've said it many times. And the last time I said it probably was yesterday. I was telling John, like, we are really lucky to be able to just quarantine and be able to keep going with our lives from our house and from our home. And a lot of it happens digitally online. So we are obviously affected, but we are also very lucky
2: now, El? I know, given that you were born in Lebanon, I'm thinking that maybe the Beirut port explosion on August 4th might have impacted people that you know there. Everybody you know okay?
3: Most of the people I know, my immediate family, are all fine, thank God. I have a lot of friends in Beirut that were either their place of work has been seriously damaged or they suffered... Uh, minor injuries from falling glass, Um, but the biggest damage is really psychological. To be away and to witness all that from across the seas and not to know how to process it and feel about it was really kind of traumatizing.
2: I have a, a very wonderful young woman who was a student at the school of visual arts and my master's in branding program. And she's since gone on to work at a brand strategy company. And at the moment of the explosion, she was on a zoom call with one of her colleagues and, um, the photograph of it happening, you know, because the zoom call was recorded wow. until it, until she completely lost power, Um, You can see, and it was, it's just, it was horrific. And you can see in that moment, the terror of what was happening. Um, And and I've been thinking about you ever since.
3: Yeah. And wondering how
2: your family and, and friends might be.
3: But one thing to take on from all that's happened is the amount of response that this event has gathered. I haven't seen anything of the Lebanese diaspora that's been happening online. All the fundraising campaigns, all the effort to kind of, um, you know, soldier up and uh, funnel funds to the city and to the civic organization that's trying to rebuild Beirut. So. It's a very devastating event, but the solidarity response that has happened has been really encouraging and really a positive thing to witness. Absolutely, and yeah, I
0: mean, yeah, and 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 even for ourselves, I mean, while I was talking about you know being in New York and being away from home and not being actually there on the grounds to help, but we did. I mean, we 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 created a fu- a blanket that we raised money for. I saw that it. Was, Absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, that said, Beirut in my in our hearts, and so I think that you know, that's one way that we've been able to contribute. And we raised 20, over $20,000 to... In one week. To, yeah, yeah, in one week. So that was really exciting that we were able to give back in that way as well.
2: I saw all of the beautiful merchandise that you created. Everything is sold out except one blanket. One blanket is left. I have my eye on it, so...
3: <laughs> <laughs> we'll send you one.
2: <laughs> and I also know that you guys, before the pandemic, you moved to a new studio. So what has that been like? Have you been able to work there? Have you been able to go there? Um, Do you regret having gotten a new studio? Tell me all about that.
0: Yeah, so we actually got our new studio space in March. So it was like right at the beginning of the pandemic. We were super excited. We started packing things up out of our house. And then the pandemic happened. We're like, well, I guess we probably shouldn't be going places and then about, I don't know, a month or so in, we were like, okay, we have to get these boxes out of our house. So, <laughs> so we've been there since, since basically June, I think. And it's been really fantastic, you know, being able to drive there, have a separate space out of our home that is still, like, clean and safe for us, but also productive.
2: And I understand you've recently taken up roller skating,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Roller skating has also been one of the saving graces of this COVID period. We have what we call our quarantine pod or our COVID pod, which is me, Wa'o, well, and a couple of our friends. And that so, was an the activity. The official that... name is COVID Coven. <laughs> COVID Coven. Ah, of course. So, of course, you've had to create an
2: identity and a, and a name <laughs> for this. Of course, you
0: have. <laughs> um, but that was an activity that we kind of do together. You know, we get to go outside, we get to exercise, we get to have fun. And it's just been amazing. And I think, you know, just kind of latching on things that just purely bring you joy and things that you could, you know, during the warmer times can do outside was amazing.
2: John, um, you grew up in Alabama, Searle, Alabama, and have said that you were surrounded by bucolic landscapes filled with acres of grass, trees, cows, and houses. And you grew up in a Southern Black church community with a large family of uncles and cousins and elders who lived close by. You also have a twin brother named Jarrett. Are you fraternal twins or identical twins?
0: We're fraternal. But we look when we were younger. We, we people used to confuse us as identical, but we're fraternal.
2: Well, that's why I had to ask because you do look so much alike that I was <laughs> I wasn't sure, and I don't want to make any assumptions. What are the biggest traits that you share with you with your brother, and and also how are you most different? I I just love the the sort of psychology between twins and how they have this sort of inner psychological connection.
0: Yes, I love this question. So Jarrett, they go by they pronouns. Um, we're both artists. So Jared and I grew up like many artists doing arts and crafts on our kitchen table. And then that translated to doing recorder in the first grade, playing recorder and then doing band and then doing piano lessons and going to theater. So growing up, Jared and I had such a rich education and introduction of art and art making And so now it's not surprising at all that we're both artists (laughs) working right now. So Jared went to Brown for undergrad and I went to RISD for undergrad. So we both kind of accidentally ended up in Providence um, where I was studying graphic design and Jared was studying theater and public policy. But now Jared's back in Rhode Island at RISD getting their MFA in painting. So it's just, I don't know, it's just kind of, it's just amazing that we both are artists and we can support each other. And then, I mean, our biggest difference is, I mean, really speaks to our practices, too. Like, I'm a designer. I love thinking about form and function and structure and grids and typography and storytelling and um, how that can come across in a two-dimensional plane. And Jared is quite the opposite. Jared is a performer. Jared does theater and dance and uses their body and creates video work and large sculptures and three-dimensional things. So it's very interesting, like, how we have very similar upbringings but interpret those things in different ways and respond to different parts of our our past and our childhood.
2: What kinds of things were you making when you were little? I I read so much about the fact that you your mom was encouraging you to do all sorts of arts and crafts at home. I understand that there was a glitter incident that I was going <laughs> to oh ask God. you about. <laughs>
0: So yes. Oh my God. All us, the research. Tell
2: us about the glitter incident. It's, it's very enigmatic online.
0: Oh my God. I love this. So, there is a glitter story. So, when we were young, I don't even know how old, probably around five years old, you know, like every parent, just giving, trying to give as many options as possible. But as, you know, young, rambunctious kids who get too excited about making art, the glitter fell onto the ground. Into We had like a rug around our kitchen floor. And I had never seen at that point in my life horror in my mom's eyes. It was like (laughs) a large jar of glitter too. And she literally picked it up and ran to the front door and just threw it outside. And then from that moment on, we've never had glitter in our house. Cause of course it took her hours to clean the glitter up. But even when we get a glitter Christmas card, she'll be like, nope, this has to go in the trash can. Like no glitter (laughs) in the house ever again. So what things were Jared and I also making? So we had a family camcorder. So Jared and I would make family home videos together. You know, we were drawing together, acrylic paint together. And then I think we, I transitioned into doing oil painting as like a very young kid. I was like, this is like what real artists do. So that's what I wanted to do. So around nine and 10 years old, I was teaching myself oil painting. And then around that same time, my mom brought home an HTML book that someone from her job gave her. It was like, your boys are smart. Like, one of them might like this. And so remember, this was probably 1990, like 1999, maybe 2000. So Pretty the internet was still time. very... Yeah. yeah, it was very <laughs> different. Like, you know, the internet was really becoming this kind of tangible thing that, you know, people could actually craft themselves. Everyone was getting personal computers. And so this book entered my life and I fell in love. I was so fascinated that you could type things out into words and those words can be translated into visual images and those visual images can be something that someone else can interact with like that was just mind-blowing to me as a kid and so yeah and then from that moment I think that was kind of my introduction to graphic design I didn't know it was graphic design then i no one told me this was graphic design um, but that was the start And then also painting was happening simultaneously.
2: And music. Um, Before we get to that part, (laughs) um, I understand that you would create animated graphics for fictitious kids clubs, (laughs) sites for family businesses, posters for church events. You're quite prolific as as a young artist.
0: You know, I think that my mom, Jess, was super supportive and she had really supportive friends like, One of my mom's coworkers was like, "Oh well, I'm opening a front, a real store in Columbus, Georgia, and I want you to do the logo for it." And it was called Believe Boutique, and I will never forget that. And I designed like this kind of like scripty cursive font for her that was like lime green and pink because she was an AKA, so that was important to her. And it was literally on a storefront sign, like lit up at nighttime next to the Mercedes sign, and I was like, "Wow!" Like. This is, is this, Big like, time. again, didn't know this was graphic design still, so like, did not have that language, just was doing things that I love, you know, didn't know I was doing typography or things, but it was amazing. And so, again, that was another kind of amazing moment.
2: You also play several different instruments, piano, flute, saxophone, trumpet. When did you realize you wanted to pursue art professionally versus music or theater, given how many movies we were making with the camcorder and so forth?
0: Yeah. So Jared played flute. I played trumpet and saxophone. And also Jared played piccolo. And then we both played piano. And, you know, in high school, when I was around in the sophomore year of high school, so 10th grade, I was doing band, was doing all of these activities. But one of my friends who was applying to college brought this SCAD prospectus book that had, you know, all the classes and all the courses that you could take and I was like, oh, can I see that? And I was just flipping through it super casually. And then I came across this graphic design section that said graphic design. And it had websites. It had posters. It had logos. It had typography. And I was like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is everything that I care about on one spread. I did. not And that's when I got the language. That's when I was like, art school is a thing maybe I should be looking at. And so basically, I ran to my art department, my visual art department, which Sally Bradley, who was the teacher there. And, you know, I had taken, I had never taken any art classes. And I was like, I want to be a graphic designer. Like, I'm doing this. I want to do this. And she was, she was like, cool. Well, you have to take this foundational class before you can take the more advanced classes. And, and I was like, I don't have time for that. I'm a sophomore. It was second semester sophomore. I was going to be a junior next year. And then so she basically worked with me after school during my band classes to kind of alternate with me getting this credit so I could kind of expedite this art track so I could take the more advanced classes so I could do the more advanced programs and um, build a portfolio because I knew at that second that I was like, I have to go to art school.
2: You've written about how growing up as a queer kid in the South, you were constantly aware of how your presence and identity were often at odds with everything around you. But it wasn't until you arrived at the Rhode Island School of Design that you really began to dissect your upbringing. And what did you realize and how has it impacted who you are today?
0: Absolutely. I love this question. So when I got to RISD, which is a very different RISD than it is now, so it was in 2009 when I got there, there were two Black students out of a class of 500. <laughs> and that was kind of also just a, kind of a culture shock in terms of really not having a community of People that looked like me around me and understood my references and things that I was talking about. And then that immediately obviously translated into the classroom, particularly my later years at RISD where, you know, we're kind of investigating degree projects and thesis work. And I was really interested in my own personal narrative because I was presenting this kind of work in school and I was met with silent ears, you know, silent ears. No one was saying anything. No one was only oh, was like a conversation with me and my teacher sometimes. And so I realized that maybe I should write this down. Maybe I should get a bearing on what am I trying to talk about? Who am I? What? Why am I asking myself these questions? What does it mean to be a Black graphic designer, a queer graphic designer, a designer from the South, a designer with their specific family makeup and experiences? And so I was very much encouraged by Jan Baker, Um, rest in peace she was amazing teacher at RISD that was like she she saw a little bit of my writing and she was like you have to write this this is very important to get this story down and from that writing and that encouragement I distilled it into four themes for myself which end up being blackness and queerness and family and southerness and allowing that to kind of be a bedrock of material for me to make work from and being able to pinpoint specific instances and being able to translate those to other people. And so that whole project ended up in a book project. And that simultaneously, I was also interviewing other people about their identities. Like, how do you talk about your identity? How does heritage identity performance show up on our physical body? So I did another book that was everybody else's stories that had photographs. So it was kind of this dialogue of trying to figure out As a designer, how do you communicate these nuanced experiences in a visual form? And so, yeah, that's the foundation for what I do now.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And so that that also was reflected, I know, in your thesis. You mentioned some of the questions. I know that you were asking yourself, um, what did it mean that you were a designer from Alabama? What did it mean that you were a queer designer, a Black designer? And, And also really asking yourself if there was a visual vocabulary that was uniting these themes, but one question you did ask that I was really curious about was, does any of that matter? Does mm, it matter? Exactly. And I'm wondering how you found your answer and what that answer is.
0: Yes, does that matter? And I realized that it does matter. I think every single person who is on this earth, whether or not you're an artist or creator or whatever, you have a story, you have your own unique, ownable, specific narrative that nobody else can claim. And if you connect with that story, if you let that story empower you, if you let your story guide you, then who knows what you can do? And you suddenly will have so much access to so many different opportunities that you weren't aware of just because you have built agency around yourself, just because you've built confidence around yourself. So those stories do matter. And for me specifically, really framed what I wanted to see in the world. It framed the types of communities I wanted to build as a professional and the type of clients that I wanted to actually work for in, as well. John Rizdi is also the place where you
2: met well. And I understand you met in an art class, self-portraiture, I love that, just the sort of meta-ness of that. Um, So, well, what was that first meeting like? I read that you were mutually impressed by each other's research and style, but I have a feeling that it went much further than that. So tell me everything.
3: (laughs) I guess it gets even more meta than that because... Uh, it was during winter session and John was in the undergrad program. I was in the graduate program. So we would not have met if it wasn't because of that winter session class, which was self portraiture and art. And I was also taking a film class and my the assignment that I gave myself, I was making a video of people standing in front of the camera and just saying my name. It was a way to build a self-portrait from other people saying my name. And John was in my class and I said, well, I want people for my video. And John obviously (laughs) was excited to participate. Yeah, John was one of the people who came into that shoot day and stood in front of the camera and kept saying my name for about 11 minutes back to back. And (laughs) Do you still have the tape of that? Oh, yes, yeah. I, ha- oh I have. Oh my the, God, well, I, have the I so need to sure. see that. <laughs> <laughs> and this is how I think we connected. I thought, especially in the editing room, I could feel the energy that was coming from John and how personable he is and how commanding he can be of attention and interest. And I think that blossomed to a friendship and a collaboration. And John would hang out in the graduate studio more than he did in the undergrad studio. Then he was friends with all my classmates uh, more than he was with his own class. And that's because I think he found in the grad studio a space for um, people to critically try to talk about graphic design that he wasn't able to find in his classmates. And I think to me, it was also a way to kind of find somebody who helps me come out of my the way that I looked at things and present me with bigger ideas and bigger questions that I was fascinated by. So I think it was, and then the rest is history.
2: (laughs) Well, you grew up in Lebanon, and I understand you spent quite a lot of time drawing Photoshop and vector illustrations of your favorite characters and celebrities. So who <laughs> oh exactly Lord. were you drawing? I didn't know the research
3: was going to go that far. Oh, deep. you're
2: blushing. This is adorable. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Surprisingly, it was during the 2006 war on Lebanon during the summer where we can also not do much. And I think we were taking illustrator courses it was Mariah Carey. There you go. <gasps> oh, how great. <laughs> oh, I think what I was, and there was also another Mexican pop diva and telenovela star, Talia. And I think I was just uh, recently accessed the internet and I was like bombarded by these pop pictures. And I was fascinated by the color and the art direction of it. And I was learning illustrators. I actually spent like days and days recreating a photograph using just like little vector shapes and meshes. Yeah, I think that was a self-crash course into Illustrator.
2: You also designed a notebook of your grandmother's poetry. Mm -hmm. What made you decide to do that? And how did you go about doing that?
3: I took off. I left my full-time job and I got accepted to RISD and I took like a month break to kind of leave Lebanon, come to the States. And I think that pause made me realize and kind of preemptively knowing that I'm gonna miss my family and my grandmother. And I just realized how important it is that my grandmother writes poems. It's mostly about herself, her family, her daughters and grandsons and everybody around her. So basically it was about us. And whenever the family was gathered, we would tease her about it until she finally goes up and gets her a notebook and reads the poems and all laugh about it. And just, it was like a really precious moment. I think before I left, I kind of felt like I needed to leave a gift or something back for, for her and for the family. So my cousin and I, we stole her notebook and scanned it all and put it back without her knowing. And then I, we proceeded to typesetting it. And I took photos of uh, different corners of my grandmother's house. And then we made, turned it into a poetry book that we got actually printed in a couple of thousands of copies. And then we had her beautiful photo on the cover eventually we had a family dinner and we surprised her on her birthday by just presenting her with that book. So it was a birthday and a book signing event surprise for her. And I I remember the moment she was sitting on the table with piles of books around her and everybody was like asking for a copy and she was signing it. And she hadn't had written a poem for me specifically, but the next summer I visited after my first year at RISD, there was a poem that she had written for me as a thank you.
2: When when you guys end up doing your monograph, I, I really hope you include it somewhere. Um, when and Banshees did her book, uh, I Wonder, she included a piece about her mother and her mother's list. Her mother was a, an avid list maker. And there's something so wonderfully intimate about seeing that work. You really get a sense of who that person is intrinsically, and it's just so touching and beautiful. So before we get to you leaving Beirut, I have a couple more questions about what you were doing in Beirut before you left. You received your BA in graphic design from Notre Dame University in Lebanon, and then went to work at Saatchi Beirut. What kind Mm -hmm. of work were you doing at that point? What made you decide to go into advertising as opposed to graphic design?
3: Well, I was not in advertising. Uh, The parent company was Saatchi, but they had an internal, almost independent department that was called Brand Central within Saatchi. Mm -hmm. And all they did was branding for uh, big companies in Lebanon and in the Middle East. Um, And I think they were one of the best studios in Lebanon. So I was really um, happy to be part of that.
2: While you were still at Saatchi, your interest in Arabic typography motivated you to become involved in the typographic matchmaking project where you mm-hmm. teamed up with Dutch type designers to collaborate on designing
3: bilingual typefaces. Who did you work with and what was that like? Oh, that was a whole adventure on its own. So there's an institution called the Khat Foundation uh, by Huda Faris. And they had done a first project that invited a designer from the Middle East and from Europe to team up together to design bilingual typefaces. That was project one. On that project, I was brought in as an intern by the end of it to help them set up the exhibition that would launch the book in Amsterdam. So I had to take a break, a seven-week break from my first job to go re-intern in Amsterdam. My bosses at the time were really understanding. And that was a uh, design eye opening experience for me, I think that changed me um It was an amazing experience, and for the first time, I saw myself as a Lebanese Arab designer designing Arabic typography in a international context, and I was faced with all the misunderstanding and stereotypes and and uh f- exotic fascination that people had and I suddenly realized that it's up to me to kind of like stand up and rectify the record and write that record and fill the record. Uh, so when the project happened again, a couple of years later, this time Huda Abifaris invited me to be one of the designers that designed the fonts. And it was a group of really amazing uh, designers, uh, it included Peter Bilag, it included Rida Abidini. So I was one of the youngest ones and I was paired with Artur Schmal, an amazing type designer from Holland. And that was my second but maybe first professional arabic typeface and just being i remember just being quiet the whole time and shy just observing these like icons of design <laughs> talk about typography and just like not having much to add to the conversation and i guess that kind of like lit a fire under me and then it pushed me to like do the best i can so i can contribute to to this discourse or if i want to be part of this Uh, Community And if I'm excited about contributing that way, then I should do something about it. But that's how my first official typeface called Kufam was born. Um, We called it Kufam because I was inspired by early Arabic from originated from uh, what is now Iraq in a city called Kufa. And Artur, my design partner, was inspired by lettering from Amsterdam. So it was Kufa and Am from Amsterdam. It was the font called Kufam and it is now acquired by Google and re-released as a free font on Google Fonts. So that's also exciting full
0: circle.
2: <laughs> you stated at the time graphic design in Arabic didn't have a lot in common that everything felt outdated, nostalgic or simply badly done.
0: Mm-hmm. But
2: you've also said that you believe that graphic design and typography can be used to preserve language. And and I'm wondering how how that is possible and if those could also potentially be counterintuitive?
3: I mean, if you think of a traditional graphic designer's course, we go through uh, colleges and universities to learn the practice. Uh, still today in the region around the Middle East, the Gulf area, most schools and university are borrowing Western uh, curriculas and then adapting it to fit uh, the current culture. So we learn it in English. Our references are Western designers. Uh, the books that we look at are all in English from people that are not from our culture. So what we identify as cool, as cutting edge, as uh, interesting, exciting design is not even in Arabic and does not deal with the Arabic script. What we're faced with is the culture around us that's not documented, that's not talked about, that uh, might be neglected. And um, I remember My classmates and probably myself did not want to, like, resolve that brief or that class um, homework using Arabic because it was just not fun or cool. I don't know at what point that turned 180 degrees and I realized, like, that I'm doing it all wrong, that that is what is most exciting. I think probably I did something in Arabic that was good and I realized that feeling of contributing to something that was not there. And I think that what Arabic typography does, historically, you know, Arabic has had a very contentious relationship with technology that's always been developed and uh, from uh, the perspective of a detached, disconnected script from the printing press to the typewriter to the keyboard on the phone. Until today, Arabic has always been an afterthought for these technologies that have disseminate language. So if we don't take care of, of that language and all that rich heritage, it will not continue into the uh, future. So that's how I see that designing Arabic fonts is a way to preserve the language and its digital forms. But it's also fascinating because if you think about it, fonts fonts are like dead software, an archive of forms. They only become alive if somebody's typing with them or writing content with them. Otherwise, it's just a drawer with shapes, but digitally, it's a file. And they take a whole different life. So I like to, I love that idea that I'm designing something that's only going to reach its full meaning when somebody else uses it. And there's some sort of kinship and relationship with somebody that you don't know or in the future that is quite, quite a poetic. And I kind of like, but I would say things are slowly changing in the past five to 10 years. There's been what I call sometimes the Arabic typography renaissance uh, more more young designers are interested with what Arabic typography can be. We're trying to design something that comes from Arab, but also responds to worries and concerns of today's youth and ourselves. And to be able to see ourselves reflected in that culture is really exciting.
2: Well, you're doing a lot for this particular community as well, and the world. You've said (laughs) that the Arabic language is still a great unifier across the Middle East. What do you think are the biggest challenges you face in reinventing more representative,
3: contemporary
2: visual language?
3: I mean, I think... The narrative that we've told as young people growing in the Middle East is that we had a golden time where uh, the Arab culture or the Middle Eastern culture had its you know, apex in culture and the creation and the invention of math and sciences and building civilization. And yet we find ourselves today uh, when we look at this, that we're not the drivers of our own stories yeah. and... I think something very inspiring to me personally is to be able to find something that unifies all these communities, even though they have different backgrounds, different stories, different religions. Uh, And I feel that the language, the alphabet, the script is something that runs through all of the people of that region of the world.
2: Back in 2017, I curated an exhibit called Text Me, How We Live in Language at the Museum of Design Atlanta. The collection was focused on the intersection of visual imagery and language and how language is the connecting factor among the human race. It was built upon my belief that we live in and through words. We use words to express and define our reality. Somehow by having these concrete messages in one specific place where we can all view them at the same time maybe we'll get to enjoy that feeling of being fundamentally connected. Today's sponsor, Lexus, has a similar philosophy. One of their core practices is borrowed from the Japanese service and hospitality industry, and it is called Kigo. Kigo refers to words and phrases in the Japanese language that are used in a formal situation or that show respect and civility to each other. It's considered one of the most polite forms of communication and Lexus wanted to apply that sense of respect when designing their cars. This is one of the many ways Lexus puts people at the center of their brand. To learn more about Lexus, visit www.lexus.com curiosity. In 2013, you both moved to New York. You took full-time jobs. Were you public as a couple at that point?
0: Uh, Yeah, when we moved to New York, for sure. I feel like it was basically our last year of RISD, I feel like we were a public, a public, whatever that means. <laughs> a public <laughs> couple. Um, yeah, because we basically, we moved to New York, but... But we didn't live together when we moved to New York. We we're like taking it slow.
2: You know, it was very hard to find. I, I actually, you know, I very, very rarely write to my guests before an interview for clarification on a fact. I, I find that to be actually a failing on my part if I'm not able to find an answer to a question that I have after 450 interviews or so. Um, but I, I have a confession I had to write to John, and I said, "You know, sensitive question. Are you guys a couple?" And he said, "Yes, we're married." <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> Why can't I find this? Why can't I find this? So I wasn't even entirely sure that you were that you wanted to to be a public couple. In that you're also work partners as well as life partners um you know Roxanne and I went to Egypt and we were very specifically told no public displays of affection people are not at all interested in seeing that you could even be arrested and i was thinking about you L and in Lebanon and and how your family might have uh, responded to coming out and john you coming from Alabama which is you know a very red state um, how have your families felt about your, your relationship and subsequent marriage?
0: <laughs> um, I guess I'll go first. Um, this is a very interesting question. I think what oh and I, like you stated, you know, we are a couple, we've been a couple for since basically 2012 and uh, we got married in 2017. And, uh, we started our studio officially in 2017, and I think you brought up an interesting tension. I think you know it's a tension that, with like me being from Alabama, like it was a several conversations. It was sev- it was it was time, you know. Similarly with Wiles. several conversation is time, and um, but it's not and, it's not done yet. You know, it's yeah. still happening. Sure. It's, it's a con-
3: yeah. I think growing up as a queer person, you it, for some for. An outsider, it looks like this must be really weird how to navigate this thing. But for a queer person, it probably comes in like as a second nature to how to, what to disclose, what not to. Um, John and I are both like really driven what we want to do. So we always felt that this is like a secondary kind of information that it did not need to foreground our work. If we are asked about it, we are happy to disclose it. But it's not something we feel that we need to i um, personally, I'm out for very select member of my family in Lebanon. Uh, i personally feel comfortable being out, but uh, it's just that the rest of my family are still in Lebanon. And the argument that I get is, well, how would that affect them within their bigger community? And it's just find that it's sometimes just less headache to deal with and to focus on other things.
0: Yeah. I mean, even with, you know, like recently with my dad, you know, I had all these articles come out about Forbes and all these things, all of my work and all of these art things. And I'm like, you know, I'm very clear about who I am in my paintings, my practice, my work that I make. And then, you know, a local paper at home like republished it. And then I think there was like a tension with him in terms of what do you communicate to the public? What do you communicate in the private? Which is annoying kind of conversation. Like it's not a conversation that I necessarily recognize. Cause I think for me it's like. At this point, I'm just like a grown up. <laughs> and so, you know, I am, I've been living my life for such a long time. But I think for our studio, you know, like, I don't know, I don't know if it's important for us to go into meetings and the client knows that we're married. Like, I don't know if that's important. And sometimes they like see it. They're like, Oh, are y'all married? And we're like, Yeah, you know, like it is, it's, it's it is obvious, you know, in it's, it's so, in so many ways, I think. um which is another reason why I guess it's not necessarily important information that we have to like put on our website. this married graphic design duo, you know, I don't know.
2: It's a sensitive subject because you do want to be known on your own for your own identity. You're not a shared psyche and you have very, very different practices or parts of your practice that are so individual. Actually, that's, that's something I wanted to ask you about. How do you manage the work that you do, John, as an artist, and well the work that you do as a, as a typographer within your overall practice of shared work?
3: That's a great question, because we could always think about that thing, especially when we wanted to officially start the studio. One of the questions that I was thinking about is, what would what is that going to mean to future clients? You know, a designer from the Middle East and a designer from Alabama, in New York, is it like, what kind of mixture is that? Like, is that going to coalesce into a brand ethos that people are going to understand? And I think at the beginning, I also had a certain rigid idea of what that means to start a studio. And then we're going to be fully, both equally dedicated to it in specific ways. And I think I kind of grew out of this idea a little bit. And I embraced the fact that we both have very diverse interests and activities. And the studio is only one of them. And whenever that makes sense to kind of grow these throughout the studio, our clients, our project, we will do that. And whenever we have opportunities of doing things separately on our own, we're also going to do that. And I think I'm a graphic designer. I'm a type designer. I love working for clients and solving their, their problems. I guess I'm also slowly investigating a voice of what it means to be an Arab immigrant in New York City. And that's a question that's taking time to mature, but I'm also not rushing it.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I guess also the other thing that is kind of crucial to our formula is, you know, one, either while or I lead a project, we always have one leader on a project. And that really allows us to, you know, know that the emails are being taken care of, the proposals are being taken care of. This project has a process from start until finish. And oftentimes those things do align with our interests. Like I love books. I love editorial design. So that often tends to be a lot of the things that I do. But Also, that doesn't mean that Wao isn't working on my projects. That means that if I need help, I have to ask for help. I need to tell him or I need to bring in my other designer or freelancer. And that goes for him as well. So I think that we just kind of also created a structure in which we can have independency and agency over kind of the work that we're doing. And we can easily collaborate and bring in one another because we know that well, I was an amazing type designer. Like, I'm not an amazing type designer. It's like, you know, I do do type and I'm, I am love it and it's great, but Wao well, was amazing at it. So I know that that is some, something that he can elevate any project that I do. And I, I'm amazing with images. I'm amazing with composition and storytelling. And so Wao well, knows that he can bring me into that. So there are these kinds of gives and takes that, again, allow us still to make time for these other projects that we want to prioritize.
2: In 2017, some friends recommended you for a job with Ellen Lupton to design an exhibition at the Cooper Hewitt Design Museum. And in order to do this project, you had to be a legally registered business to work with a Smithsonian institution. And at that moment, Marcos Key was born. Had you been talking about starting your own studio at that point with like great seriousness? Or was it just a sort of pipe dream? Or was it more taking advantage of an opportune moment?
3: Yeah, I remember remember that time really well. We were already talking seriously about starting a studio, but it was something definitely like, that's like a next year project, right? And that was more like the agreement. And we got that call and it was an amazing opportunity to work with uh, the Design Museum and Ellen Lupton Yeah, we had to be to be officially on paper a studio so they can uh, channel the funds because it's federally funded. So we kind of looked at each other and we kind of hung up the call and went immediately on LegalZoom.com and we like registered the company just right there. And then the next day we did the other required paper to be registered with the government so we can't take on that project. What project was it? It was the exhibition design for a Hear he Play Designing with Sound, an exhibition design um, at the Cooper Hewitt Museum. So it was an amazing opportunity that we could not say no to. What a great way to kind of like uh, start the studio with that. You have both sort
2: of hit the design scene with great fanfare um you're both winning awards quite a lot of awards both independently as well as together and disclosure i was part of a group of people that were judging the new visual artists for print magazine the year that you were chosen and i remember when we saw your portfolio that you had submitted we were all like mm, okay these guys are going somewhere um it's so exciting to see the first steps of young designers sort of hitting it big. Um, I remember when I first saw Jessica Walsh's work, same, same thing. Jessica Hesha as well, same thing. Timothy Goodman, same thing. How do you perceive this early success? Are you just grateful? Are you concerned about maintaining it? Are you concerned about longevity? Talk about your relationship to this notoriety now that you
0: have. Oh, this is such a good question. I mean, honestly, me and my work 24 seven. That is our plan. That is our faith. That is our willpower. You know, we are, we are workers and we love what we do. And anytime we ever get something, you know, I was like, we have to take a moment and pause and celebrate this. Like, this is an amazing opportunity. Like, sometimes we'll just like move on just quickly to the next thing because we're just so involved in our projects. But, it is i think it's very humbling i think it's we're very blessed to be able to make things that we love and make money off of it and then other people also like it like <laughs> that's the best job in the world but to to me this is is work we are just workaholics we just love working we put all of our energy in working and thinking about our work and You know, and I think that's also why we have so many different practices, because it allows us to continue working, but flexing another side of our brain (laughs) that helps inform the other work that we're doing. So just the workers. I have a couple of questions that I just want
2: to ask you about some of your projects so people can look into them as well. You were both recently part of a group of artists that took over the New York City subway station at Brooklyn's Atlantic Avenue Terminal at Barclays Center. So can you talk a little bit about what you created and what you were hoping to accomplish with this work?
3: Yeah, I uh, that was an, a great project and we were invited by Rich Too, who works for MTV, to participate in that campaign. And I think when we got the call, what immediately came to me is like visibility. You know, you are in a, in a place where people are going to see it. And to me personally, it reminded me that I've been in New York for so many times and I have never seen Arabic on the subway. Uh, Although New York has a a big community of Arab Americans, over 160,000 Arabic-speaking people in New York, but there's still something about the language that does not get shown. Uh, So for me, that was an opportunity to create something that will make me feel giddy and happy. Um, I think my piece that I submitted, one of them was a smiley face at the mouth. It's a typography in Arabic that reads, tomorrow's a better day. And it was um, in June. So it was like at the peak of covid And the other one was Under the Rainbow, which was also an abstraction and lettering piece. Um, And just to see them in a public space and see people pass by them is it's just really nice to be able to kind of put a stake in the city that you've been in a while and see like feeling the city respond to you and be able to call it home because we're both kind of outsider to New York City. And then we came here and we're making it our home.
2: The Center for Book Arts exhibited a selection of your book projects. Um, the exhibit also included a selection of books from your personal libraries that have been instrumental to your practice and are in dialogue with the projects being exhibited. I also got an opportunity to interview you for that as well. Which book projects are included in the exhibition and why did you choose those specific projects?
0: Yeah, so the book projects are all a combination of editorial things that we've made for clients, book projects, zines, newspaper things that we've done. It's kind of a range of print medium. What projects are amazing? Well, one of my favorite projects is obviously The Tenth Magazine, which is a black, queer, fashion, editorial, lifestyle magazine that was founded by Kari Sepp and Cal Banks. And... You know, from its inception, the whole point of the 10th magazine was to show the diversity in the landscape of Black queer people in America. And so when I first found this magazine, I was moved. I was crying. When I got I was sleeping through it. It was just amazing because i had never seen anything like that before. So, of course, being a graphic designer just moving to New York emailed them and was like, do you need help? This is amazing. And from that moment, you know, six years, seven years later... Um, I've been working as the art director and kind of design director on the issues. And, you know, and what's great, like the one of the, I think we have three issues there. One being the technology issue, which is the fourth issue, the romantics issue, which is the fifth issue, and this smaller issue called CaliCod, uh, which is the kind of 5.5 issue. And they, each magazine, each kind of issue focuses on a specific topic, a specific time in history, and really kind of investigating blackness and queerness in that intersection in that specific context. So what is the black queer experience in technology? How do black queer people share themselves on technology? What are the influencers, specifically romanticism? How has the black queer romantic showed up in history? There is a painter that I'm forgetting, obviously, right now, that painted these rainbows, and he's kind of rumored to have been a black queer painter, and this was done in, you know, the 19th century. So it's kind of just amazing, you know, these hidden stories and this diversity that can be, um, that can come to life when you look for it. And the Calicod was more about about vacation, leisure. What does it mean to celebrate all the people who bring these magazines together and have these moments of joy? So anyways, I love I those because it becomes like a very, like a visual feast for each of them because it can be so nuanced and so specific every time.
2: I have two last questions for you. One is about um, a very recent project, uh, the design that you did for Black Features by Jenna Wortham and Kimberly Drew. And this is a book that's over 500 pages. It includes artwork, essays, interviews, recipes, poetry, archival tweets from over 100 contributors. It's an incredible book. I just got it, it's fantastic. That tells the story of the radical, imaginative and resilient world that emerging and renowned Black artists are producing today. Talk about the process of working on this project.
0: Yeah, so Kimberly Drew reached out to me three years ago to pitch the idea of me designing this book. And she had seen work, the 10th Magazine actually, um, that project. She was like, this is a beautiful project. I really want you know you all to work on this book. And I think this was also right around the time that we had just started our studio as well. So the book was inspired by these rhizomatic connections similar to how you experience on the internet. And the idea that one thing in one book can lead to something in another part of the book and that this blackness, our black creativity, is interconnected. And so I think that was kind of one of the fun design problems or challenges that we could do is like, how do we connect 500 pages worth of information. At the beginning, it was like 200 pages worth of information. So uh, the book grew over the next two years as they were working on it. Yeah, and and also for us, we wanted to make sure that it was very legible. You know, it was very, like, something that someone could actually sit down and read, that even if it is large, you know, it's not too big, that you can't, like, throw it in a backpack and kind of take it along with you. So... Yeah. It was a really amazing project and I'm so happy that it's out into the world.
2: Yeah. It's beautiful, beautiful book. You know, one of the things that's been a common denominator for design matters for the last 15 plus years is the, my sign off, which is we can talk about making a difference. We can make a difference or we can do both. And as I prepare for a show every, every week, I really feel like I end up living with my guests and and sort of inhabiting their lives to really try to understand what they do. And it occurred to me this week as I was preparing for the show that that you guys really do encapsulate that slogan. You know, you talk about making a difference and you make a difference with your work. Um, You know, the world is becoming an increasingly violent, polarizing, politically fueled place. And Designers and writers and artists are often being called to help communicate and heal, help heal. And and I do think that you're one of the firms that are making, making a difference doing that. And being so young, it's such a remarkable accomplishment. For those designers and artists that are listening that wonder if design and art can really make a difference, you really are proof positive that that it can. And I'm wondering if, as as, our final, as my final question, you can share one or two ways that anyone that's thinking about trying to make a difference with art and design, how, how they might be able to get started and, and sort of step into that unknown place and, and make a difference.
0: I think John should start. <laughs> For me, if you want to make a difference, I have two points. One, write your story down. Figure out who you are. Figure out what you love. Figure out what inspires you and what you're passionate about. And then at that same time, figure out what do you stand in the world? How much space do you take up? Is it important for you to make a poster about black lives matter or can you just donate? Is it important for you to I don't know, just like re- recognizing What your power is, your superpower, I like to say sometimes, and how that can actually be effective in the world. And sometimes it's small gestures to start with that can lead to big gestures. And I think the small gestures are really just looking around you and just doing the things you care about and sharing those things with people that you love. I mean that that is the step. The first the baby step. And then once you do that, you will find more people that love and care about the things that you do, and you will inspire one another. And then from that step, you will I mean who knows what's gonna happen?
3: To me, the world is interconnected more than ever. And visual communication is the way that brings us together. Everybody is scrolling on their phone and trying to reach out to something else. So there is more than one way to to reach a mainstream. There's more than one way to affect the people around you or to leave a mark. You don't have to go through the traditional channels of becoming a movie star to become a celebrity to feel that you have a legacy that's gonna survive you. That's not how it happens today. It happens through uh, finding what matters to you and finding the little gesture that you can do something and talk about it and feel proud about doing that. And um, just be thoughtful about what you work on. And I don't know, I always find this question really very tricky to kind of explain it to people because, I don't know, there's something inside you that that makes you the weirdest person you are and that's going to be your superpower that John is talking about. So find out how you can put that weirdness that you have into action with the people around you. And that's the best place to start.
2: Jonathan Key, Well Marcos, thank you so much for joining me today on Sight Matters. I'm thanking you so much for making a difference with the work that you do.
0: Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you so much for having us.
2: You can learn more about Well Marcos and Jonathan Key and see some of their work on morcoskey.com. This is the 16th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, and we can do both. Right, Jonathan? Right, what? Yes, we yeah. can. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking <laughs> with you again soon.
1: Design Matters is produced for the TED family of podcasts by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Master's in Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.